Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Good evening. I have to uh, say, first of all, reading Information Wars, your book, is just fascinating. There are so many stories about times that we thought we knew about and we get a lot of background but then I actually was really excited about the part at the end <laughs> where you talk about solutions and um, <clears throat> one of the uh, the questions about uh, or, or your your thought that there should be media literacy and also civic literacy um, and I, I, I say this as someone who goes up and introduces myself as being from Minnesota Public Radio and holding my microphone in front of people's faces and they say, that's very small for a camera, isn't it? <laughs> and um, which happens a ridiculous amount of time. But how, how, what form does that take? Learning, I mean, is this something that should be taught in schools? Is this something we should just be talking about all the time? So um, Mark mentioned that I uh, ran the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, a really fabulous place. And, um, and one of the great moments was I put Sandra Day O'Connor on the, on the board. And um, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor is just a spectacular woman. I mean, uh, she's, she was in, the, I think she's in the Colorado Cowgirl Hall of Fame. She's, she's, um, and, and I remember her saying to me one day, she said, Mr. Stengel, we're going to pay a terrible price in this country for having stopped teaching civics 50 years ago. And, you know, we used to joke about, you know, oh, boy, I have to go to this class on how a bill becomes a law. Um, and again, it wasn't the most exciting thing, but I'm not sure we would have elected a candidate for office who didn't know there were three branches of government and may still not know there are three branches of government. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, an educated electorate is absolutely indispensable for, for democracy. And by the way, the framers knew that better than anybody. So um, I, yes, I would argue that we need to teach civic literacy, digital literacy, media literacy in schools um, and start early. I mean, by the way, uh, you know, they should be teaching computer programming in schools. I mean, the, 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 you know, we have to move with the times. And one of the things that, you know, my pal, uh, Walter Isaacson said in his book about Benjamin Franklin, the one institution Franklin could come back to contemporary America and recognize is elementary school. Uh, That's not a good thing. But. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask about something else too, and that is um, I, I was lucky enough recently to meet uh, Daniel J. Jones, who is an FBI investigator who was the gentleman who spent several years in the bunker um, going through the documents about the CIA torture program. Mm -hmm. And uh, he then, he produced this huge report which then became uh, subject of a lot of internal politicking uh, during the Obama administration as to whether or not it would be released. And it was finally released in a heavily redacted form. So this was essentially seven years of his life working towards getting at the truth. And he said that finally, 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 this heavily redacted document went out and it was on the front page of every single, you know, reputable uh, news publication in the world. 
but the day after it was gone. And I, I wonder sometimes that part of our problem is the news cycle is going so fast. And there are actually a lot of people within uh, politics, within government, within international relations who depend on that. Mm -hmm. So, um, oh, I'm sorry. Have you not been hearing me? That I've gotten lazy with the microphone. Um, yes, the news cycle has sped up. I mean, it's sad that a story that someone had worked on for years and years was, 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 was um, only was a one-day story. But I'm also a little bit skeptical about this idea that technological change ha is changing everything. So um, when I became editor of Time, I did some research into the history of how Time started. Henry Luce uh, started it. And it was started in 1923. And part of the reason he started this News Digest was that there were 26 daily newspapers in New York City in 1923. And he felt people were overwhelmed with information. They couldn't process all the information they needed in one kind of digest. So throughout our history, you know, technological change has been bemoaned. I mean, uh, you know, Plato worried that writing would ruin people's memory. So. Um, I don't think he was right. Maybe. Yes. Yep. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical that you know that that this that we can't absorb all of this. I think I think you know the problem with civilization, not to put too fine a point on it, is that technology is evolving very fast, and we humans are not evolving at all. That's the big problem. We'll we'll get right on that. <laughs> but, um, well, a technology question here from the audience. Would you explain bots? Yeah, so um, bots are, are machines. They're not humans, and they are, uh, uh, you, there's a kind of a formula, an algorithm to create a bot, and the Russians are, are very good at it. But by the way, you know who else is, is good at it? You know, big Procter and Gamble and, and, and big companies that are trying to get you to buy consumer products. So, so what they do is bots will, um, will retweet things. They will, um, I mean, if you ever get on, on Facebook or on Twitter a, a request from someone who doesn't seem real, I mean, I do all the time, uh, it's probably a bot. And one of the things that I, that I suggest is that, that the platform companies need to tell you when something is not human and, and, and when something is, is human. You, can't, you, know, you can be deceived by a human being too, but I'd like to know when I'm being deceived by a machine rather than a human being. We had a, an interesting story actually last week on our air about how uh, even before President Trump began his campaign against Ilhan Omar, there were some 90,000 tweets about her. And uh, there was a, an academic did a study of this and went and actually looked for the source and found that about, about half of these uh, tweets were actually filled with Islamophobic uh, claims. But they'd actually, the vast majority of them had actually only come from five people. But they had been sent out and then had got it, the bots had then uh, had actually expanded upon them so that they were, they, they quickly became 90,000 tweets. Yes, I mean, there's a hierarchy. I mean, I talked about countering ISIS. So we, I remember, we estimated at one point there were five to 10,000 what we call digital jihadis, mostly in Iraq and Syria. And they would get tremendous traffic for what they did, in part because they would all retweet each other, and they also had bots doing that. And I think 
there's just a lot of, of uh, nefarious folks uh, out there. And there's a lot of, you know, artificiality of, uh, in, in the Internet. So part of the problem with, with the way these, all these companies work is that the, the, the great goal is virality, right? I mean, everybody benefits from that. Um, the platform companies get more viewers. Uh, they get more advertising. The people who create viral content actually can make a lot of money from it. That was the story about the Macedonian teenagers during the election who, uh, who created Hillary Clinton sites and, and Trump sites. And the Trump sites, which was filled with misinformation and disinformation, got you know, tremendous amount of traffic. And, they get, and again, whatever the rate they get, penny per click, you know, Google ad, the, the way the Google ads work is that you get paid for, for virality because people um, are, are, are advertising on your site. So one of the things I talk about as a, as a uh, time up, what was that? No, no, no that's okay. just a ping. <laughs> uh, is, is that, um, that when I was a, a young journalist, even when I was editor of Time, there was still interaction between advertisers and brands. I mean, I would have to take out advertisers and have a martini at lunch and try to persuade them to, to advertise in time. Uh, you know, they knew if they were advertising in time, they were getting fact-checked content, reliable content by experts and journalists. But on the web now, the vast lion's share of advertising is automated advertising. What does that mean? You're buying a, a, a cohort, a category. You're not buying a brand. So there's no interaction between human beings when you buy ads on Facebook or, or Google. But here's what happens. So if you're selling sneakers and you want to reach young men between 18 and 24 who uh, like the NBA, you, know, you can program your ad to reach them. Google will help you do that. Facebook will help you do that. But what do young men between 18 and 24 look at on the internet? A lot of nasty stuff. So, so a sneaker company complains like, well, my ad is uh, on this conspiracy site, or my ad is next to pornography, or my ad is, is, is next to th this violent site. Well, when automated advertising, when advertising is delinked from brands, what that does is it helps create a rise of disinformation and, and virality. I don't have a, a great solution for it, but, but part of the way the world has changed has, has optimized uh, disinformation. That's a great question following on from that. Um, can you provide examples of how other countries have responded to disinformation and lack of transparency of who is pushing ads or uh, uh, pushing content on the internet or social media? And were any of those countries successful? So the, the, um, the, the best example and the, and, the, and the folks who are most uh, out front about this is the European Union, the EU GDR. And they have created, you know, very uh, strict guidelines about advertising, uh, about hate speech, um, and uh, and a lot of the American platform companies are are, are both guided by that and, and looking for that. Um, but I do want to make a point about what's allowable and what's not allowable. And the 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 First Amendment applies to government censorship. The first five words of the First Amendment is, is Congress shall make no law. The First Amendment does not apply in the same way to private entities. It doesn't apply in the same way to Facebook and Google as it does to the US government. By the way, Facebook and Google have their own constitutions. It's called terms of service agreements. 
nobody has ever read a, a whole <laughs> term of service agreement. But if you do read it, you see content that they say that they will take off if you do it. And by the way, they will take off hate speech. I mean, they say it's not allowed. The reason they don't take it off is because they have immunity from any liability if they don't take it off. And so they, their terms of service says it's not allowed, but they don't take it off because they, they, they have immunity. That's why the Communications and Decency Act, Section 230, needs to be amended. So many questions here. Um, as Twitter gets ready to announce more details on banning of political ads uh, that, uh, that mention candidates, do you think this will have any impact or will lead to a broader conversation during the uh, broader needed, a needed broader yeah. conversation during the election? So I, I thought it was bold of, uh, of Twitter to, to uh, say they're not going to take political ads. I, I find philosophically that I have a problem with it because for a variety of reasons. One, we're a democracy. Our whole system is based on people making a judgment about political candidates and one way we do that is through advertising. Even advertising that's deceptive. We want people to, I want people to be able to make those decisions and, and, and Lord knows, if Americans are sophisticated about something, it should be commercials. Uh, we've seen so many of them. At the same time, it's, it's at political advertising on, on social media is, helps uh, minority candidates, helps the little guy, helps David against Goliath. You can, you can have ads on Facebook or, or Google. You know, you, you can, you can, that, that helps you win. It, it helps good guys as well as bad guys. And so I think it's a, it's a difficult decision taking up political ads. Um, the one distinction I would make, so, uh, uh, you know, political ads are, are political speech, and political speech is more privileged speech than regular speech, for, for good reason. There's a whole, you know, 100 years of, of constitutional law about that. What, what I think the distinction I would make, and I actually heard, um, saw today that Joe Biden said, said something like this, is that, is that I wouldn't take down political ads, but political ads that contain demonstrably, provably false statements should be taken down. Um, that's not an easy thing to decide, and one of the things that Mark Zuckerberg said is, do you want Facebook making those decisions? And I guess I don't, um, but I, I think, it's, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated issue, and um, I think the world wouldn't necessarily be a better place if all the platform companies took off political ads. <laughs> Following on from that, we have an election. You may have heard there's an election coming up. Um, wh what, in, in terms of the disinformation and the tactics used, I mean, wh what's your prediction as to what's likely to happen? Will we see more of the same? Well, one of the things, again, if, if folks are paying attention, so the, the, um, the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is, ha has issued two really excellent bipartisan reports about, about disinformation, in the recent one that came out just a few weeks ago, they pointed out a, a number of things that were new to me and, and, and alarming, including the fact that the Russians have done more in our election space since 2016 than they did before 2016. Uh, they too have become uh, more sophisticated. There are new uh, evolving technologies like deep fakes, which are, which are very, very dangerous and very hard to combat. Um, 
So I think that it, I think it's going to be a you know a, a, a kind of ugly free for all. And and of course, you know you have the president of the United States who is the disinformationist in chief, who who seems to not care at all about any kind of fidelity uh, to fact. So I can't imagine that his campaign is going to be uh, at all squeamish about that. So I, I think it's I think it's going to be. Um, a pretty wild ride. So everyone should read very carefully. <laughs> they, well, yeah. I, I mean, the good news is that we're talking about it and that people are more aware of it. And, um, you know, most Americans were not. And uh, most Americans were not at all skeptical about the content that they got. And I think, I think most, uh, you know, Americans probably are more skeptical and more wary, and that's the first line of defense. Another question from the audience. We've talked a lot about Russia. What is China doing? So, um, good question. Um, and it, some of my information is a little bit out of date because it's from 2016 when I was in government. But um, the Chinese are the most adept at uh, stealing and hacking uh, uh, website databases that have information so that the hack of the Office of Personal Management, where, the, where information about 14 million Americans was stolen, that was done by the Chinese in 2014. Uh, the Chinese are masters also of stealing intellectual property. They don't uh, adhere to you know intellectual property uh, guidelines. That being said, and that's at the, that's at the harder end of the kind of uh, of information war. Uh, they're not um, yet really out there putting disinformation in our system about, about things that are going on in America, or even about themselves. There have been some recent reports that they have been uh, doing sort of uh, internet research agency type stuff around the protests in Hong Kong. Uh, that's, that's a little bit scary, but as far as I know, and I, and I'm, and I, don't, I don't have completely up-to-date information, they're not here doing the same things as the Russians with Disinformation. They're doing other bad things, but but not that. And then there is the question about pressure being put on U.S. companies that want to work in China too. But that's maybe not the dis disinformation. Yes, that's a that's a whole other you know area, including these crazy tariffs and all of that. So uh, we won't get bogged down. Yeah, <laughs> we could be here all night. Um, there are pushes of establishing. Uh, personal data security is a human right. Uh, do you believe this is a, a positive step to have ownership of personal data? Yes, absolutely. It's your data. You should own it. People, these companies are making billions of dollars with your data. You're, they're selling it. So I, agree, I think there needs to be a, a, a privacy bill of rights. Um, I, I, I think, you know, when we'll look back decades from now, it, it will seem we're in a primitive time where people didn't own their information. I mean, your information is valuable, and, um, and you should own it. You should decide what to do with it. And there are lots of interesting companies that are now trying to become brokers of information. Um, yes, I mean, that would, that would also get in the way of a lot of this uh, nasty stuff that's out there, particularly if you say, you cannot use any of my data to target me with, a, with, with any kind of advertising whatsoever. I mean, that would, that would change the economic equation of, of these companies, that, that, that that's their lifeblood. 
You mentioned uh, the the idea about uh, publishers and the control of uh, the, the the platforms. I'd actually like to kind of squish together a couple of questions here. How do we need to deal with Facebook through legislation or otherwise? And then what should we be what should be done with the quote disinformation from Fox News? Okay, those are two different questions. Very different questions. Um, yes. Let's take the, the, the former first. So one of the things I do write about in the book in, in this battle against uh, ISIS's disinformation is actually how effective uh, the platform companies were in fighting ISIS disinformation and ISIS propaganda. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars. They hired hundreds of Arabic speakers. They, they consulted with, with the government about it. They, they didn't want this on their system. They, they did an excellent job, and I praise them in the book, you know, specifically Facebook. Um, on the Russian stuff, um, not so much. Uh, I don't know how much uh, Facebook saw. Uh, I assume they missed a lot of it also because it was hidden in plain sight. I mean, why would anyone know that, that Tennessee GOP w wasn't a bunch of Republican women? I mean, one of the scary things for 2020 now is that the Russians are also kind of renting people's Facebook handles, not creating them out of whole cloth and even buying time on American servers, which they did, but actually using legitimate, um, you know, names of people. Um, I've now forgotten. Oh, so they, so, um, so, but again, I do think making Facebook and all of the platform companies more liable for this content, for disinformation, false content, et cetera, would, would have a, uh, a, a long-term effect. Um, Fox News. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting that I, I, I've been reading about, and tomorrow, I guess, the, is the first day of the actual public hearings of the, of the impeachment uh, inquiry investigation. Um, I hear people um, say, people on the right say, well, if Fox News had existed when Richard Nixon was president, he never would have been uh, impeached and he wasn't convicted, he resigned. Um, I, I do think that, that Fox News as a kind of a pro-Trump uh, 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 entity is, is, is dangerous and something new in, in our republic. At the same time, uh, they have lots and lots of journalists there who, who care about good journalism, who are doing good journalism about, about other things, and um, insofar as news organizations, particularly on cable, have, be have become more skewed towards opinion rather than reporting and, and pure fact-based stuff, I, I do think that is dangerous for the republic. I, I, am, I am one of those people opining uh, all the time, um, but I do also miss the, the days of, of uh, Kind of more traditional uh, objective journalism, of which there's 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 plenty to find. But I do think Fox is on this kind of normative continuum we have, and um, I think there's a danger in um, ostracizing people who are still trying, you know, on many occasions to to uh, you know to report the news, whatever that means. So. <laughs> How do okay. we hold? Is well, I don't want them to hear me. I let them. Yeah. <laughs> How do we hold established news agencies to account when they run false stories or actively push disinformation? And and I that I suppose that accusation has been leveled at 
almost every news organization at some point. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, a traditional news organization that is a publisher, if I, if I, when I was editor of Time Magazine, if we, if we published false material, defamatory material, we could be sued. We were sued all the time, as any news organization is. We printed retractions when there were falsehoods. None of that applies to the platform companies because they're, they're not considered publishers in the way that traditional publishers are. Now, you know, if Facebook had to print a retraction for everything that's false on Facebook, I mean, that would become even bigger than Facebook. So um, I'm not saying they have to be liable in the same way that Time Magazine is liable, but, but traditional news organizations, and this is part of media literacy, I mean, they can't print or, 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 or promulgate disinformation, I mean, that, that isn't protected by the, by the First Amendment. You can be sued, um, and, and, and they do. They get sued all the time. Although it is, it has to be said, it's a tough process, suing. I mean, it, it can take a long, long time, and you're not really guaranteed of well, necessarily but, yeah, getting... So, but also, I mean, ha good faith news organizations, if someone exposes something, you know, another news organization that actually, uh, in this in this story that you wrote, you're, uh, you know, it's false that the State Department did X or Y. I mean, news organizations print retractions every day. Now, you know, part of the problem is they don't get as much attention as the, as the original mistake. But, I mean, you, and, and online, you can look up the retractions that the New York Times prints every day, or the Washington Post, or, or any paper. Can make fun reading sometimes. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, that, but that's also the advantage that the disinformationists have. It's why it's asymmetric warfare. They don't print retractions. They don't have to check their stories. They don't have to research their stories. That's why you can be so fast. So that's the, that's the handicap that traditional news organizations have as well. We have always been a country of different points of view. The difference today seems to be our loss of respect and, very, and we're very divisive. Can we return to civil conversation? I hope so. Um, it does seem, uh, uh, well, that does sound better. It, do, it does, uh, it seems far away. Um, one of the underpinnings of, of the First Amendment is this idea of the marketplace of ideas. Uh, it came from John Milton and, and Enlightenment thinkers, and, and it was believed in by the by the framers, um, and the marketplace of ideas is this idea that uh, the truth uh, will win out over falsehood. I mean, there's a Thomas Jefferson letter in the free interplay of ideas. If the truth is allowed to speak, you know, it will always win out. So, you know, they were men of the Enlightenment. They believed in something called reason, uh, which I'm not sure I believe in. Um, and but but one of the things that I argue because of social media. That this, the marketplace of ideas is is kind of broken. Um, this idea that 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 truth or factual material will overwhelm uh, falsehood is is kind of proven wrong every day. Where where every study shows that the most alarmist and sensational content is the content that becomes the most viral. So I I worry a little bit about about the the playing field. It's not level. Um, and I, uh, and I worry about the loss of, of, of civility, where the, you know, the loudest voices uh, are the ones that are, that are most heard. You 
write in, in your book, in uh, Information Wars, about the transition you made from being a journalist, and actually a very quick transition you made from then going into uh, becoming a, a, a diplomat. And it, it looks like you had a lot of fun, although <laughs> some pretty rotten days too. Um, do you see yourself ever doing that again? Which? I suppose either. <laughs> <laughs> going, going back into government in some way. So a, a friend of mine who's a, who's a, a foreign policy uh, scholar said to me about my book, he said, it's, it's not much, it's not the best foreign policy book ever written. It's the funniest foreign policy book ever written. Um, I, I have to say, as critical as I am of the bureaucracy, I, I loved uh, public service. I loved uh, working in government. I loved, as somebody put it, standing behind the flag. Uh, I always felt like, for better or for worse, and we've made mistakes, that we were always trying to do the right thing. I remember, you know, I'd spent my year, my lifetime, kind of covering things like this, and then suddenly I was in meetings with, with foreign officials, with President Obama and with Secretary Kerry, and I would hear them say these things that they were actually saying in public, where they would talk to the Chinese about human rights and about repressing free speech, and this was in small meetings, and it made me super proud, and. Uh, it made me proud to be doing that same thing. And I saw that over and over. And one of the things that's, that's dispiriting about the, the current administration is that you know, these ideas, these are idealistic ideas that, that we would actually speak about uh, uh, in these meetings with, with foreign leaders and heads of state and foreign ministers, I, I'm not so sure we're doing that anymore. I mean, I, I remember actually a, uh, an African foreign minister saying to me, somewhat jokingly, uh, you know, you come and talk to me about human rights and transparency, and the Chinese come and build me a superhighway. Who am I going to listen to? Well, I'm proud that we talk about human rights and, and, uh, and transparency, that we're not completely transactional. We have an administration that's, 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 that actually doesn't understand the values piece and only understands the transaction piece. What's your opinion about Snowden? I, I assume this is not Princess Anne's former husband, but um, uh, uh, Princess Margaret's former husband. Uh, you're right. You're right. I apologize. Well, that's me never going back. Okay, right now. Yeah, that was misinformation. Yeah, that was misinformation. Yeah, I did that deliberately, so we have a. Uh, I knew that because I went to graduate school in England at, at Oxford, and there, my college, Christchurch, had a dinner once for uh, Princess Margaret, and I think there were, there were 40 grad students, uh, 38 of them were English grad students, so there were two Americans, m me and my buddy, and we were the only two people who were not invited to the Princess Margaret dinner, so I do, I, <laughs> uh, not saying there was any prejudice. No, not at all. Um, you know, I, I, to be honest, and you've asked me a question about going from journalism into government, um, I had a different view of Snowden um, before I went into government. And, um, and, you know, in this era where we're talking a lot about whistleblowers, um, what I realized in government is that, is that he imperiled uh, the lives of many people who were risking their lives for the American public, who took an oath of office to defend the Constitution 
And I, I think there were there are there are better ways to do what he did uh, without jeopardizing uh, the safety of people who are risking their lives for all of us. Uh, let's see if I can read this. Um, granted, it doesn't seem the current administration is interested, but could there be deterrence in our own intelligence agencies waging dis disinformation on the Russians? Well, and, and, and again, this is actually it would be a, an actual classified discussion, but but um, but we don't do that, and um, and 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 believe me, it's something that got talked about in government. Should we respond the same way? I talked a little bit about how countering. Should we set up an internet research agency of our own? After all, these are our platforms, but. Nobody was for that. We, we don't do that. The intelligence services are not uh, creating disinformation uh, to counter Russian disinformation. And, um, and I'm proud of that because when, when we become, when we do back to them what they do, do to us, we become them. And, and that, is the, that is the difference ultimately. Again, I'm not saying that, that, you know, that the US has, have, have been angels on, on the world stage always, but, but, but I have to tell you, in, in those rooms where people, serious people are making serious decisions, we decide to not play that same game that, that they do. Now, there are some reasonable people who say that we should, um, and, and of course, during the Cold War, we did that with, with, with public diplomacy, with, with, you know, with uh, you know, why we fight and, 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 and things like that, but to me, those were honest depictions of America uh, that were telling America's story uh, that people didn't necessarily know. And um, and no, we don't we don't do we don't respond to disinformation with disinformation. Okay, um, there's a, a, a question here that obviously has a, a point of view. But after an administration that has promoted disinformation and has had agencies remove information from public access, such as about climate change data. Uh, how can we rebuild trust in our institutions? I think it's very hard. And I, again, as I mentioned, the, the, the Russians and the disinformationists not only want us to maybe believe the falsehood, but believe that there is no truth. Um, you know, this, this wacky philosopher that Trump uh, you know, quoted a couple of times during the campaign, um, uh, who was close to Putin, uh, Alexander Dugan, you know, has famously said, the only truth is that there is no truth. That is, the, that's, the, that's the Russian way. And I do think it's going to take a long time to, um, for America to have credibility on these issues again, including, including climate change. And um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a difficult thing. I know. Maybe this is a yes/no question. Does Russia have something on Trump that makes him favor Russia? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that was three words. I don't know. Um, how do you recommend uh, young people prepare for a career in foreign service? Can you be specific as how they should build uh, and maintain a strong moral compass? Yes, I think I'm a, I am. A, uh, a big fan of the Foreign Service. I'm, if anyone here is thinking of taking the Foreign Service exam, I, I would recommend it. 
I think it has to evolve and, 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 and come into the, uh, into the 21st century. But as we've seen over the last few weeks with uh, a number of foreign, career foreign service officers, career ambassadors who have, who have certainly risked their careers, risked their lives even to come forward uh, in opposition to the State Department telling them not to testify, answering subpoenas, um, that the, the moral compass of, of the Foreign Service for the most part is, is, is bending in the right direction. I, I think, um, again, in my experience working with hundreds or thousands of Foreign Service officers, I never knew what political affiliation they had or whether they had any political affi affiliation. Uh, the, the, the overwhelming number of them were absolutely there for the right reasons, as we've seen with the Foreign Service officers testifying. They work for the American people. They don't work for uh, any particular administration. I was a political person. Uh, you know, they saw me, uh, you know, I, people like me come and go. The, the Foreign Service abideth forever. And, 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 they, and they believe in the oath that they took to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Um, the only thing I would change is I would, I would bring them more into the, into the modern era, you know, have people be on social media, uh, have other types of expertise than some of the traditional expertise, but, but, the, but the training they get, they're there for the right reasons. They're, they're patriotic Americans. We just have time for one more question, and I get to ask it. Okay. So, <laughs> um, at the end of the book, you have a sentence, if information is power, disinformation is an abuse of power, which seems like a it's a very simple, but boy, that is that opens such a chasm. Um, what, what do you mean by that? So um, I, I talked about the framers' view of information. There's a there's a famous passage uh, from uh, Madison in in the Federalist Papers where he said, uh, "Popular government without popular information is a prelude to a farce or a tragedy or both." I don't know which one we're living in now. Um, but, but, but it's this idea that, to them, that democracies exist and function with the use of, of information and facts. That's how people make their judgment. In the, in the Declaration, uh, governments are formed among, among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. How is the consent of the governed arrived at? It's through information. That's how, how democracies work. So, so I actually think um, when someone abuses the truth, uh, they're abusing their public trust. They're ab abusing uh, the, the voters and the people who have to make decisions about, about who should govern. And so uh, to me, it's a, it's, a, it's a serious crime. It's a high crime and, and misdemeanor, and depending on who it's practiced by. So uh, disinformation does undermine democracy, and that's why we have to become as vigilant as we can in, in trying to get rid of it and trying to put out truthful, fact-checked narratives. Richard, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.